0: Welcome to the Cambridge Cafe Scientific Podcast with me, Diana O'Carroll. This month, clinical neuropsychologist Professor Barbara Sahakian, who is based in the Department of Psychiatry at Cambridge, came to talk about the emotions of decision-making and what drugs we can take to improve our decision-making performance.
1: Well, the research is really about how we make decisions, and I'm interested in really high, good quality decisions, the type of decision-making that entrepreneurs or politicians have to make, you know, where you're on a really big scale and there's a lot to gain or a lot to lose. But I also, because of my own work in psychiatry, have to study when decision-making goes very badly wrong. And that often happens under conditions of emotional stress. So, you know, if you have depression or if you have mania, you can make very erratic or poor quality decisions. And I'm very interested in how that happens and why that happens. And again, I work with patients with brain injury and with brain injury, sometimes depending on the area of the brain where the injury occurs, you can also find that their decision-making is impaired. And then on the other side, I'm interested in how might we improve that in people. So there might be you know, cognitive behavioural therapies and other psychological therapies, but also pharmacological therapies, drugs that might help okay. improve decision-making.
0: Okay, so first of all, how do you go about measuring what a bad decision is and what a good decision is? Well, that's a great question
1: because uh, the work that I do requires that we actually design and develop and invent new tests which are objective so we actually can have in the laboratory an objective measure of how good the quality of decision is, how long it takes you to make that decision, whether you make a risky decision or not. And so it's very important that we're able to carefully monitor that. And I study two different kinds of decisions. One are cold decisions, and those are sort of non-emotional decisions. So the sort of thing like, well, should I go to a talk this afternoon, or should I spend the time finishing off my work, or, you know, that type of decision, or maybe I'm planning my schedule, and I'll decide to do this first and that second, or emotional decisions, which I call hot decisions, and those are ones that involve either emotion or reward versus punishment, so risk at some level, and I try to explain that when I'm talking to my students, I say, Suppose your friends say to you, oh, let's go out drinking tonight and you know you've got an exam tomorrow morning and you should really be studying and and getting a good night's sleep. And they say, and if you come out with us, guess what, that girl that you want to meet is coming out with us too so you'll get a chance to meet her. So there you are. You're trying to make this decision and you really want to go because you might meet this girl and all your friends are going to have a great time. On the other hand, you've got an exam and you want to do well in that. And so there's a lot to gain but also a lot to lose depending on what you decide to do. And sometimes those decisions have to be made really fast. They're what we call time limited Mm -hmm. because your friends aren't going to wait around while you make up a list. Oh, you know, the pros for going out of this and the cons for going out of that. They want to know right away because they're off.
0: When you were talking about a cold decision, one that might involve do I need to do this work or do I need to, I don't know, wash, wash the dishes, that kind of decision, yeah. how do you go about saying that that's separate from emotion? Because personally I might find work really boring or I might find doing the dishes really boring yeah. and so my emotions might come into it. So how do you go about separating that?
1: Well that's an excellent point and I try to talk about cold versus hot decisions quite separately but in reality as you point out they're not as separate as we like to think they are and easily a cold decision can become a hot decision so that suppose I'm going down the road to do a lecture and I suddenly realize that I you know didn't leave anbrook site fast enough to get down to the downing site where i'm giving the lecture and then i see that there's a bus lane but uh, you know i shouldn't be traveling in the bus lane and then i have to make this decision so what could have been a cold decision if i'd left plenty of time i could have just decided should i take the hills road route or the trumpington street route it becomes a hot decision because suddenly i'm i'm lacking time and i'm getting emotionally upset because I might be late for my lecture. And and so yes, they can switch quite easily between the two.
0: Okay. And so how can a mood disorder affect that decision-making process then?
1: Yeah. So what we've done is in our group, I've studied uh, patients who are depressed and patients who have mania, bipolar disorder in the manic phase. And what we've found is that both groups tend to make have problems with hot decision-making. They make the decisions very slowly. And then um, also we find in mania that the quality of the decision can be very poor and that that relates to the severity of the mania. So that's quite important because we know that manic patients frequently might make bad decisions in real life. So, for instance, they might take their credit card and go out and max it out, you know, suddenly when they're in a manic phase. So that fits quite well with that. So we've been able to study that and uh, work on that. And children with ADHD also have problems with decision-making, and they tend to not be able to evaluate risk in the same way that healthy boys would. And so we've been able to look at that, and we've actually found that Ritalin, which is a treatment for ADHD... Can actually help with that to normalise it a bit. That risky decision making.
0: Okay, and what other treatments are out there that can help people with mood disorders try and make more helpful decisions? Maybe the maybe even the right decisions, if there is such a thing.
1: Yeah. Well, we've been looking at um, cold decision making, and in cold decision making, where they have to do planning and problem solving, we found that they're very. You can get a good improvement in healthy people, but also patient groups. With modafinil, which is a drug which we're not quite sure how it acts, but it seems to affect two chemicals in the brain dopamine and noradrenaline, which is how Ritalin also acts, methylphenidate. But it also seems to have effects on other neurotransmitters, and for instance, it affects glutamatergic functioning. So there are drugs out there, and what we found is that modafinil. Is a drug that we've been able to show improves this cold decision making. And now we're finding that, like Ritalin, many healthy people tend to use these drugs. So there seems to be an increasing lifestyle use of some of these cognitive enhancing drugs by healthy people.
0: And do you have any idea what kind of situations healthy people are using these drugs in?
1: Yeah well we know that students for instance in America and also in the UK are using them quite a lot for cramming for exams so staying (laughs) awake and alert during their studying which maybe they haven't done it solidly throughout the term and so it comes to the end of the term and they really have to cram so they use it for that but also some students have reported they use it to write long essays get focused and keep up their motivation while they're writing very long essays so we know that but Actually, I did a paper in Nature with Sharon Marin zamir We we published in Nature paper called Professor's Little Helper, because I found out that some of my academic colleagues were also using these cognitive enhancing drugs, and they use it primarily for jet lag, but also in other situations.
0: But that's enough questions from me. What did the Cambridge Cafe Scientifique attendees want to ask?
1: Yeah, I walk down the high street,
2: and there's a store in the high street called GMC. And they're selling supplements day in, day out to guys that go to the gym. And they also want to make themselves better. So what is the difference between Daphinol and um, stores you know, like GMC? Yeah,
1: I mean, I, I think it's very interesting. I mean, it's different ways of enhancing. One's enhancing the body. And uh, I think it's very interesting when we when we had that episode recently with these breast implants. And I was not aware of how many ladies had actually had those. And you know, some years ago it would have only been movie stars that would would do that and now it's sort of a regular thing. So this kind of enhancement. And some people have suggested some of the Oxford philosophers think that, you know, that's what we want to do as a as a species. We want to enhance ourselves as much as possible. So there's, you know, physical ways of doing it bodybuilding. I mean in sports as you know, there's always problems with with drug use. I think that for certainly a certain group of the population, you know, enhancing your cognition is also a very attractive thing to do. And it'd be very interesting because I suspect that it all depends on what you value. So if you value physique and you value, you know, your ability to lift weights or something, that's the kind of way you want to enhance. Whereas if you value your intellect or other people's intellect, then that's, or if you're trying to get on... Within a field which requires intellectual ability, that's what you value. So it's very interesting. Can
2: you see that? Acceptability.
1: Well, I think that as it becomes more and more, because there is an increasing lifestyle use of these drugs, and as it becomes more and more prominent, I guess there will be more and more acceptability. But what I would rather see is to prevent any kind of harms and people buying things over the internet and, you know, taking these drugs when they might have drug-drug interactions or they might be counter-indicated for them personally, is to have a more rational approach to be getting access to these drugs where they've done the trials in healthy people.
0: Most of the use of the drug that we can see seems to be um, off prescription. How are you collecting data for
1: both short-term and long-term side effects? Well, Exactly. This is the problem. And there are problems with SSRIs, yeah. and that is, you know about them because they've been Absolutely. No, that's an excellent point. I mean, you know, as you point out, that with the prescription drugs, if there's an adverse event, the doctor reports it so that nationally you're getting this data entry, and that when something becomes concerned, they can send out a notice immediately saying, you know, we've had these adverse events, stop using these drugs, or stop using these drugs in this group of people, or whatever. But this is the trouble with the Internet buying. There's no uh, mechanism for recording any adverse events, really. So we could
0: be having another thalidomide event?
1: Well, let's hope not. Um, yeah. Yeah, I mean, so far with narcolepsy... And this may be one reason why modafinil is challenging this lifestyle use of the drug. The side effects are relatively low, and there's no evidence as yet for substance abuse with modafinil.
2: When you talk about sort of cognitive enhancement, uh, there are all sorts of different ways you use the brain. There are people who like to solve mathematical equations. There are people who write things, need to draw on vocabulary. Does it work equally for all these things?
1: <clears throat> so we haven't tested every single skill that there is. But what we usually do is test areas of skill, areas of cognitive processing. So we would put in a test of attention. We would put in a test of executive function. And we might put in tests of decision-making, hot and cold Mm decision-making, and tests of memory. And certain drugs like modafinil can improve the whole range of those cognitive abilities. And it's interesting because some people say they'd like to use cognitive-enhancing drugs because they've never been good at this. So like they've never been good at I don't know, navigating through space. So they've never been good at, you know, word finding when they're, Mm -hmm. you know, lecturing or something. So they'd like to sort of improve that. And I often make the point that, you know, I talk about the optimal level of arousal for optimal performance, which is what you need. So we all know that if we're if we're overexcited, if we're nervous, we can't, you know, give a good talk or perform well because we're too nervous. But then if we're hadn't had enough sleep and we're dozy we don't give a good talk because we're too tired so we really want to be in the right place to do the right to do the right thing but if i were to ask people here how many people feel that you're performing today or this evening or that you know earlier today at your optimal level i mean how many people felt yeah i got a good night's sleep had a good meal feel great and i'm at my i'm at the top of my game just the one, so. Oh, two? Two, okay. So, this is the thing. I mean, so many of us don't get a good night's sleep. It's too hot. It's too, you know, we have small children. There's this, there's that. And we're stressed, you know. So, frequently, we're not at our optimal level of performance, even as healthy, normal people.
2: I guess, on the back of my mind, I was reading this book by um, Brian Butterworth. It talks about two different parts of the brain doing different kinds of uh, arithmetical problems. Either very
1: Digitally accurate ones, or sort of estimations. They're different parts of the brain.
2: So you might expect that they're affected differently by these
1: drugs. Yeah. And and certainly there are some drugs where, some of the drugs like Adderall, where sometimes you can improve one thing, but it's at the detriment to something else. And maybe that's what you're sort of suggesting. But with modafinil so far... What we've seen is either you get an improvement or no change. We haven't actually seen the detriment side of things.
2: I wonder if I could raise a a social issue, which is that as these enhancing drugs become smarter and smarter and more and more widely available, I cannot see them politically being provided free through national health services around the world because it seems to me whereas the, the sick you know there's a sympathy for them and a feeling yes out of tax we should pay for them to become healthy i can't see the population saying yes we're happy to pay our taxes before people have been harmed. Mm-hmm. so that suggests that that whole industry would be in the private sector mm-hmm. and it rather alarms me whether this could increase inequality not just within the country but worldwide in the wealthy individuals and wealthy countries would be able to afford all this enhancement. The others couldn't. Mm. And there could be almost a vicious circle where those that could afford it became even wealthier. Mm. And that, you know, I don't know how we can stop it, but it seems to me one rather alarming implication of this is that it could reinforce inequalities in society.
1: Mm. I think uh, a number of people are concerned of, of that as a sort of ethical issue that, you know, one could say, oh, now we've got these drugs, we can decrease inequalities by giving these drugs to people who had a bad start in life and maybe we could help enhance them so they could get better jobs and get better pay and that sort of thing but a lot of people point out that they will probably have to pay for them and then you'll just increase the disparity in society which uh, does become a social problem i know that when i was over lecturing in america there was a uh, i was reading the new york times and there was actually an article about a doctor who. Was actually giving Ritlin, I think it was Ritlin, it was certainly stimulants, to children who were not labeled as attention deficit hyperactivity disorder. They were just not performing very well at school, and he felt that their families were very chaotic and not trying to help them, and he felt the school was not interested in them because they weren't performing that well. And he said that, you know, for him, he could either try to do something to see whether that improved their performance at school or do nothing. And he decided to do something. But it was quite a big story because normally, of course, you have to be labeled with a disorder to get a treatment. And uh, I presume... Did it work? Yeah. Did it work? That I don't know because, (laughs) unfortunately, they just highlighted the fact he just started to do it, so whether it actually was beneficial. But I have no reason to believe it wouldn't, because my studies have shown that we've done studies with Cambridge undergraduates and been able to show that Ritlin can enhance their performance. So, you know, they're obviously quite bright to start with. And we also know the patient groups, so what I'm saying is the drug's not acting differentially, it's a cognitive enhancer. But the amphetamines will act on the baseline, whereas modafinil doesn't matter whether you've got a poor level of performance
0: or a high level of performance. It seems to improve both. If you want to find out more about Barbara Sahakian's research, she has a book out and it's called Bad Moves, How Decision-Making Goes Wrong and the Ethics of Smart Drugs. It's on sale in all major book-selling outlets. That's it for this month's Cambridge Café Scientifique podcast. Details are on their website. If you'd like to attend the next talk, you can find information at cambridgecafescientifique.com. The Triple Helix Café Scientifique podcast is sponsored by the Medical Research Council and was produced by me, Diana O'Carroll.